Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you'd like to support us, a great way to do that is by heading on over to our Patreon page and becoming a subscriber there. Uh, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the particular Baptist. All right. So now I am back in the saddle today. It's been a little bit, took a break because uh, my daughter's birth, Trudy Vincent, was born last Thursday. So you can imagine focus, my attention has changed a little bit to focus on the family, but uh, I'm back in the saddle and, and hopefully back to our regular programming. Uh, but I want to talk about some historical retrieval stuff today. I'm continuing my series of book reviews because you know I, I have a stack of books here that you know I've gone through in in some way, shape, or form, and I'm wanting to talk about and review, talk about some of the topics in them and such. And today is yet another book on the Trinity from a historical theology perspective, Nice and Hot Disputes, The Doctrine of the Trinity in the 17th Century by Philip Dixon. And this works out well because it comes right off the heels of my interview with Dr. Timothy Gatewood, which was our last episode where we talked about the recovery of classical theology. So I think this is kind of helpful in light of the context of that. You can go listen to that. It's on our YouTube channel, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or Facebook page, etc., that was a really helpful, enjoyable discussion with Dr. Gatewood. I think it uh, it would be very helpful to those who listen. Uh, but with this book in particular, Nice and Hot Disputes, and you can find this. I think I found this on Amazon. I don't think it was cheap. And that's one thing that you'll find, I think, with some of these academic works is they're not going to be cheap necessarily. You're going to you probably have to fork out a little bit of cash to get them, unfortunately. I understand people got to, you know, they need to get paid what they're due. They've put in the work for it. You know, the parties involved need to uh, receive compensation. I get that. But it does. It means, unfortunately, that the material is not always accessible. Uh, so it's it's something to keep in mind. But I think a very helpful work as it relates to Giving, I wouldn't, it's not exhaustive, but I think it gives a, a really good overview of some of the, the Trinitarian discussions that were going on in the 17th century between the Reformed Orthodox camp, um, some of those in the Church of England at the time, and what you see with dissenters, the Socinians in particular, who Dixon spends quite a bit of time on as he's going through his book. Uh, this book was published in 2003, and it says that Philip Dixon teaches at or lectures at University of Wales College, Lampeter. I don't know if he's still there. Just, I mean, this book is 20 years old. He may not be there anymore. And I honestly, I don't even know if this guy is a Christian. He might just be a historian. I couldn't find anything on whether or not he's a believer or what he's affiliated with in terms of religious uh, affiliation, but. I think that at the very least, even if he's not a believer, he presents, I think, a very helpful historical narrative that uh, can really be informative in the discussion of the doctrine of the Trinity. What did the Reform believe? What were the discussions going on? What were some of the hermeneutical flavors that were 
thinking that was going on at the time. I think it's very, very uh, helpful. And, and what Dixon wanted, at least in part, was to see why there was a loss of the Trinity in the first place and why we need a recovery at all. He talks about this in his introduction. Why did we even need a recovery of the doctrine of Trinity? When you talk about recovery, that implies there, at least to some extent, there is loss, right? You can't recover something that's not lost. So there is a sense where an Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity in the modern day, the modern church has been lost simply, I think, for a variety of reasons. But I think that was one of the inquisitive uh, thoughts that was going into this work as he was putting this together. Why was it lost in the first place? Why would we even need to recover it? So I think that's one of the great things about studying historical theology is that we can use it to learn from mistakes of the past and mistakes of the present. You know, we can apply things where we need to apply them, and we, we can you know, make those changes um, as needed. So I want to look at some different options, you know, different things in the book here. Um, let's see, somebody put a comment. I noticed this uh, Claudio Zanella. This comment was here even before I started. So uh, he was already uh, getting into the discussion here. He says, absolutely ridiculous. The Trinitarians insist saying, that Jesus is with the Father and the Holy Spirit when Jesus, the person involved, states and reiterates to be with the Father only. Read the Gospels. Uh, thanks for the comment, Claudio. Uh, I, I think you need to clarify that a little bit more. I, it doesn't sound like, based on this comment, that you are a Trinitarian and that you have problems with Trinitarian theology. Uh, I think you need to bring out your position more for me to really be able to interact uh, with what you're trying to say as it relates to uh, Jesus saying that he's with the Father only and somehow saying that the Holy Spirit is with the Father is a problem. Uh, and I, I think you need to flush that out more, and especially bring me these scriptures from the Gospels that you think prove your point. Uh, so look forward to that if you're able. Okay, so let's take a look at the book here. Uh, so Nice and Hot Disputes. So Dixon really dives into... Sassinianism, okay? Sassinianism being an anti-Trinitarian view that was not monolithic necessarily. It wasn't monolithic. There were different views among them. There were some general principles that Sassinians had, but they didn't all fall into the same bucket. We have to be careful about that. But there were definitely hermeneutical presuppositions, understandings of language that led to them rejecting an orthodox doctrine of uh, the Trinity. And that's one thing that I think Dixon does well, is he's good at bringing out some of the assumptions of different dissenters so you can see why they chose the understanding of the Trinity that they did. Not just that they rejected the Trinity, but here's why they did. Here is the biblical hermeneutical framework they were coming from. Here is their understanding of language. Here is this that influenced their thinking, etc. So I think that's really, really helpful to this discussion um, as you're looking at this from a historical perspective. Why did they do this? Well, here's why. So you can see things like, we'll look at page 39 here, where you see this concept among the Socinians of biblicism and rationalism. Okay, Socinians, and I guess I should back up a little bit. Socinians, they're an anti-Trinitarian group. They 
pushed against the doctrine of the Trinity. There is a push against philosophical language and a use of tradition, a, a use of what the church had, a traditional language that the church had used to talk about the Trinity in favor of uh, a more modern understanding of uh, the Trinity, a simpler flattening of language, make it easier to understand when we're using language, which created a lot of problems, as you can imagine. If, if anyone has listened to our other Trinitarian uh, Doctrine of God episodes, you'll see that, I think, pretty quickly. But looking at page 39 here, he talks about some of the the thinking behind where the Sassinians uh, were coming from. And I think he does a really good job here. He says, quote, anti-Trinitarian teaching and anti-Trinitarian groups are thus clearly present in England of the 1640s. But where did such sediments originate and who are the propagators of such views and why are, were such opinions being advanced? During this period, anti-Trinitarian ideas seem to flow from two sources, often intermingled but distinguishable. The first was the spread of Socinian ideas from the continent. The second was a homegrown product born out of the marriage of Biblicism and nascent rationalism. And then he goes on to talk about uh, this Biblicism, talking about Francis Chanel, the Westminster divine, who interacted with Socinianism at length. So you can see this shift taking place here, right? You see a shift taking place in the doctrine of the Trinity as it relates to how one views the scriptures. How are they viewing the scriptures, these Sassinians and these dissenters? Well, you see that there was this understanding of Biblicism, right? We've talked about Biblicism, this idea that in its radical form, in its consistent form, I guess, this idea that if you don't have something laid expressly down in scripture, then it's not biblical, right? It's not biblical. Well, it doesn't say God is Trinity, so therefore it's not biblical. And of course, the Reformed push against this because they saw Scripture as entailing more than simply just the express writings of Scripture. It was much more than that. Uh, and you can see the over, I wouldn't say overreaction, but the strong reaction against Socinianism, against this type of thinking from Westminster Vines, like Francis Chanel, right? Francis, he called Socinianism Italian atheism. Okay, so he saw this not just as a, a minor error that you could just kind of skim by. We can call your brother and, you know, we have differences. This was damnable. Okay, this was denying fundamentals of the faith. Uh, he called it atheism. You're not, you don't even believe in God if you hold to this, this understanding. So it was considered a uh, serious error, not one to be trifled with. Um, and it, it's important to, to note that these men saw these doctrines as, as so important. This was not something to be that you could put on the back burner and just say, well, you know, we'll, we'll all get along, you know, yeah, we can speak at each other's conferences, but we have, you know, heretical views that we're not repenting of, of Trinity. This was just... You're not a Christian if you believe in this Socinian teaching. You're, you're just not. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, no qualifications, just you're an atheist. You're not safe. And I think we have lost that sense of seriousness as it relates to doctrine today because we have become, I think, very ecumenical in our thinking. We think that we have to uh, 
that graciousness and patience should trump the day over standing for truth. And that's not to say that those things are bad and that we shouldn't be in the right situations, but we tend to choose that over standing for the faith. And we can't do that. We have to be very, very careful of it. So with Socinians, you, you do see that they, at the very least, denied a, a biblical view of God with authority given to pagan philosophy. So rationalism coupled with this biblicism, and you can see right away that there is a shift away from the tr this traditional language that's used in the church, which uh, is going to create problems. If you're going to shift away from that, then you're, obviously your doctrine of the Trinity is going to change as well. And then ironically, they're going to begin importing pagan philosophical thinking into their doctrine of the trinity while trying to avoid doing that in the first place and you'll see this idea that come up with uh among dissenters of the orthodox doctrine of the trinity is this idea of popery they they're thinking that this is kind of a this doctrine of the trinity is kind of like this this roman catholic view and it should be rejected it shouldn't be held because of that um, and the reformers saying, well, no, we're just pulling, we believe this is biblical, this is the language that was used, you know, this is safe, this is a biblical understanding of God. So you can see, again, the language shifting, the language changing, battle over semantics, and why, you know, it, it, it's not a tomato-tomato situation, it's a matter of, if you say the wrong thing, you might get the wrong God. So very key understandings here of doctrine of god now looking at the hermeneutical assumptions uh, i think dixon does a really good job here of bringing out some of those hermeneutical assumptions among uh, dissenters look at page 41 look at page 41 he says quote the Socinian grammar of divinity holds that the person of god is the father is the father christ is a human person albeit one who has been elevated by the divine power of god to be a mediator uh, between God and humanity, and the Holy Spirit is not a person, but a per personification of God's actions. And that's from he, uh, Dixon cites the Rokovian Catechism, which was uh, the Catechism of the Socinians. So you can see there's Christ is being attacked, and this tends to be the consistent mantra, the consistent drumbeat of heretics who... Uh, turning away from the bill. Usually Christ is the one who's attacked. So also the Arians, see the Nestorians, uh, etc. They attack Jesus Christ and of course undermine God in the process. Going on here, Dixon says, quote, it is important to grasp what is going on here. So Sinianism is best seen as an exegetical position in the Rokovian Catechism was arguing that Trinitarian language was unreasonable, but also that it was unscriptural. So Sinian roots in Renaissance humanism led them, along with much early Protestantism, to be impatient of what they saw as scholastic niceties and thus to reject reflections that were at pains to examine how the word person functioned in a Trinitarian context. So you can see here, now they're starting to get into understandings of what does person mean? When we say God is three persons, what does what does that even mean from a biblical standpoint? And so the Socinians were trying to work this out in their own way and saying that the Orthodox were 
uh, wrong in their, you know, their assessment of how the Trinity was to be portrayed in our language, right? They thought that they push against scholasticism to some extent. And a lot of the, and it seems that the philosophical language that was used to help explain these biblical concepts in a coherent way, they thought that was not helpful. And, and if we jump ahead here to page uh, 45, page 45, uh, Dixon brings out a player here, Best. His name is Best. Uh, he was a, you know, an anti-Trinitarian heretic falling into the Socinian camp. Uh, but he said, quote, Best rested his case by appealing to Scripture and Scripture alone as the right rule of faith. Let us labor to reconcile Scripture by Scripture and by no means admit in an absurd sense. He thought it was clear that one God must have one essence, one existence, and hence be one person. To speak of three persons would be to introduce three existence sharing the same essence. And then you know, going on here, Dixon says, Best is not an original thinker, but he exhibits definite traits amongst certain religious radicals, the insistence upon scriptural language, the impatience of analogical and formal linguistic usage, biblical literalism, and of course, anti-Roman, uh, anti-Roman polemic. So again, you can see the shift here. We don't like the language of the Orthodox Church, Orthodox meaning a biblical church, not Eastern Orthodox. The Orthodox Church and pushing against that and seeing that language is not helpful. And you can see uh, the rejection of analog analogical language, as Dixon brings out here, right? Pushing towards a univocal understanding of language and God as it relates to us, instead of utilizing an analogical understanding of those things. So again, the, the mindset is changing. The mindset is changing, and that always leads to a problem when you're talking about God here. Um, and I, I think that there are, you know, the, the general guidelines that we're to follow uh, is using what we call the analogy of faith. We've talked about this before, using scripture to interpret scripture, this biblical literalism, right? Instead of understanding and letting scripture speak for itself, as you see, like in the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, using scripture to interpret scripture. So an unclear passage that might appear literal in one sense can be qualified by another clearer passage somewhere else in scripture. And that's the, the mindset that we're to have. But you can see the Socinians going away from that and simply taking a literalist understanding of scripture instead of letting scripture present itself in the way that it does. So rejecting a, an understanding of letting scripture speak for itself, right? And, and certainly no good and necessary consequences happening there as it relates to Scripture. I think it's, it's very unhelpful, but that's what we have to do. And that's what the Socinians uh, were pushing against. And if we jump ahead to Dixon's book on page 49, uh, he, you know, Chanel was, did not mince words as it relates to the Socinians, pushed against them heavily, okay, and, and really, I think, heretics in general, uh, but Chanel said this, quote, devil hath done more mischief in the church by counterfeit Protestants than by professed papist, end quote. And that's from his uh, work, The Rise, Growth, and Danger of Socinianism. So Chanel is, is saying that there are you know, those in the church among Protestants who are far more dangerous than any, any 
Roman Catholic. I think, you know, I think you can draw conclusions from that. It's, it, of course, they're far more dangerous because they look like the good guys, right? They're, they're harder to point out, but they're, so that means they're more deceptive and it, the damage is going to be worse. And it might be harder to root them out and get them out and figure out where they are because they're coming from your group. The Pope, the, the papists are easy to point out, right? Those are easy. You can, you can call them out to the cows come home, but you're not going to be able to do that um, by necessarily uh, looking at people in your own group. It's going to be much more difficult to do that. So I think Chanel is, is trying to point out that it, it's much more destructive for those within your own group. And the Socinians were professed Protestants. They were not some fringe group that uh, didn't identify with Protestantism. They did. And actually, they were very much against Roman Catholicism. So they were lumped in, I guess, to some extent with the Reformed because they were considered Protestants. So and I think that creates a, a huge problem. Now, if we look ahead at page 51, and I'm jumping around here because I, I think, you know, reading from Dixon, I think is a lot easier than me just regurgitating what he said to you, but you can hear it for yourself. Uh, in this page here on page 51, Dixon, I think, does a really good job of focusing on a, a key character, a Socinian named John Biddle. I think he was probably one of, or if not the worst of the Socinian camp, but at the very least, I think one of the most famous ones. But he says this about Biddle, quote, in it, Biddle reduces language to material descriptions alone. There is no place for words and function as formal concepts to aid reflection or clarification. So stop right there. That would nullify using any kind of philosophical language to help clarify biblical language, right? So he did not uh, hold to that at all. Moving on here, Dixon says, what is conceived as separable in the mind must be materially, uh, a materially separate thing. To use the word person is to speak of an absolute separate and independent existent. There appears to be little appreciation or acceptance that the language of person could be used analogically, for Biddle sees no important difference in the way in which person is used of God and how it is used of men or angels. This is well in line with the growing privilege of the univocal in language in general and Biddle's rather particular scriptural literalism in particular. Biddle's literal reading of the scriptures led him to conclude inter alia, that God had emotions, had limited knowledge of future events, and even possessed a body of sorts. So you know, probably reading passages like God has wings or God has arms, literally, right? Instead of using other places in scripture to help clarify what those mean, taking them literally and not in ignoring the rest of biblical revelation. And again, this, you can see too, the shift, this analogical thinking, analogical language being put aside for univocal language. Well, if God, if we say that God is a person, if there's three persons in God, then that must be three beings. We can't say that because a person in my experience is a separate being than me. So you can't have that. Uh, so again, you can see that I'm reading creaturely language back into God and it led to heretical thing, even thinking that God had a body and that God did not know the future and just completely denying orthodoxy and damning himself in the process. So that the shift in language is really where you start 
um, I think, uh, to see this this come forward. And then on page 53, Dixon talks about Biddle Moore, uh, but he talks about the problematic denial of good and necessary consequence in Scripture as it relates to John um, Biddle. And of course, this is a denial of what we find among the Reformed in places like uh, chapter 1.6 of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which teaches that the Word of God consists not only of what is expressly set down, right? So what you see on the paper, per se, and what is necessarily contained or what is thereby good and necessary consequence. Uh, they both had the same authority. I think our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, does a better job. It's necessarily contained. So that which flows from the express teaching of Scripture is also Scripture, right? That which flows necessarily from it is also Scripture. And that would include, you know, proper philosophical language that follows from the express scriptures that don't have specific scripture references. You can't go to a passage that, you know, Romans, whatever, whatever, and say, well, it says God is simple. It says God is timeless. It doesn't, you're not going to find that anywhere in scripture. But we would say it's necessarily contained because it flows from the express teaching of scripture. Biddle also didn't like the concept of terms like subsistence, again, using some of this philosophical language. Um, but you know that this language was used constantly for Trinitarian purposes. You can see this in John Owen, Chanel, and guys like Nicholas Estwick. And they had no problems using analogical or philosophical languages have been done traditionally in light of scriptures to explain the concepts of, of the Trinity. Uh, and this is where they thought that there was safety and consistency, obviously under the headship of Scripture, but these terms could be used to help explain what the Scriptures are saying in a consistent fashion without contradicting it or undermining it. Okay, so I think it's very important uh, just to, you know, to see that on kind of a, a high level. Okay, now kind of diving more into the understanding of, of how language shifted during this time in the 17th century. Dixon talks about uh, the, the concept of person as it relates to God and how some of that language started to change uh, and that language started to shift. We've seen that a little bit with the denial of analogical language and going for a more univ univocal understanding um, of language and using easier literal language about God. Uh, there's actually a really good part here. One Page 120 Page 120, I think, is where it's at. Let's see. Yes. Uh, so he, he quotes uh, another uh, dissenter, Trinitarian dissenter. It says, quote, echoing Hobbes and reflecting in general, a general drive towards a flattening on speech, the objector challenges Wallace, quote, show me the Trinitarian who dares dispute this question about the Trinity in plain English. So you can see this push away from using difficult philosophical language. We want language that's easier to understand when we're talking about the Trinity. Give it to me in plain English, or I reject it, right? So this, not only the understanding of the terms, but just the understanding of what language is used in general. We use easier English, or do we use more difficult concepts to in English, or whatever the case might be, to describe these different uh, aspects of it? So... 
it, and, and you can see too the the consistent response of these detractors was to go back to the scholastic language, right? That have been used traditionally, like using terms like subsisting, uh, modes of being, etc. Uh, keeping in that safe traditional language, and it was when people moved away from that language that about God that their language became damnable, that their pro doctrine of the Trinity became extremely problematic and and heretical. And I think this is very important, and I, I might talk a little bit about this at the end. But you can see this under you can see this mindset today in our modern time in the church as it relates to understanding these things, moving away from traditional understandings and language, and then you end up in a place that you were trying to avoid initially. And it, every single time this happens, and it's just right in front of us historically. Um, looking at the idea of person again, another understanding of person that really started to change during this time was promoting this idea of the persons of the Trinity as self-conscious. Now we've, we did an episode um, a while back where Andrew and I interacted with an article that James White wrote talking about three centers of consciousness in relation to the persons of the Trinity and dealing with that. But you can see that even now, this, has, this isn't something novel that James White came up with. It's rooted back in at least in the 17th century, could be earlier, but we're talking about the 17th century here with this Cartesian influence, philosophical influence upon it. Uh, Descartes, he was a philosopher. He was one of, if not the pioneer for formalizing philosophy surrounding consciousness. I think, therefore I am. That's a pretty famous statement that comes from Descartes. And it carries this notion of, I am thinking, therefore that means I exist. So Descartes was trying to deal with the question of, you know, how can we know we're actually really existing, right? And so he said, well, I'm thinking, therefore that means I exist, right? I'm conscious, therefore I must be real, I must be here, this must be reality if I'm thinking, right? And so you can see these concepts of consciousness from Descartes seeping into theology proper, even though I don't think Descartes meant for that at all, just I think that these concepts were just starting to be applied in this way. For instance, uh, Descartes defines thought as follows. He says, quote, thought. I use this term to include everything that is within us in such a way that we are immediately aware, consci, of it. Thus, all the operations of the will, the intellect, the imagination, the senses are thoughts. I say immediately so as to exclude the consequences of thoughts. A voluntary movement, for example, originates in a thought, end quote. And that's from his Principles of Philosophy, part one. So he's, he, he's identifying the mind with consciousness, right? He's identifying the mind in consciousness. So I think when Descartes is saying things like, I think, therefore I am, he's saying at least in part that personhood is defined by thinking, which he sees as consciousness, consci. So you are a real person if you are thinking. And the negation would be, you know, you don't exist as a person if you aren't thinking, therefore a person cannot be if they aren't thinking, Right. And now how that relates to unconsciousness is, is different in it. You know, it doesn't seem that Descartes distinguished between those things. You can see that from a work called the, the Cartesian unconscious. But I, I think the principle remains that a person must exist because they are thinking, identifying mind with person, right? The two are inseparable in Descartes' mind. And so you start to see that. And I, I think Dixon does a really good job of bringing out 
you know, the Cartesian influence here. You start to see this understanding come into the doctrine of the Trinity. One player in particular, I think that this comes out with, is with a man named Sherlock. He taught this mutual consciousness of the persons of God in the Godhead, and his view was even dubbed as the Cartesian Trinity of three infinite minds. So even the Orthodox were seeing, oh yeah, this sounds like Descartes. This sounds like Descartes thinking seeping into the Trinity. Yikes, we can't, you know, we can't be having that in here. So if we look at page 126, 126 of Dixon's book. Um, he talks about, he says, quote, by contrast, Sherlock's Trinity lies at the other extreme and is the Cartesian Trinity of three infinite minds. For Nye, this is clearly a revival of paganism, for we have a real Trinity of three distinct gods. And uh, it says, quote, mutual consciousness maketh them to be a consul or council or cabal or senate of gods, by no means one numerical god. So, you you know, you can see the, the problems with that already. If you have three different minds, three different implies three different wills, it, that means you have three different three different gods at the end of the day. And of course, that's a Cartesian influence with regards to identifying the mind with person. Right. If they're self-conscious, if they're self-thinking, then they must that must be what makes them a person. Right. They must be self-conscious if they are to be persons. Otherwise, they can't be real persons. Right. So, again, it's this Cartesian understanding of the mind and thinking. So you can see this extra biblical philosophy creeping in and being uh, used in an improper way as it relates to the biblical understandings of, of God. And of course, Mueller, in his Dictionary of Greek and Latin Theological Terms, second edition, in his entry on Persona, lays this issue to rest as to whether the Orthodox actually believed in any kind of self-consciousness of of the persons. He says, uh, no. <laughs> uh, no. He says, and none of these uses, and he's talking about um, the Lutherans and the Reformed in particular, he says, quote, in none of these usages does the term persona have the connotation of emotional individuality or unique consciousness that clearly belongs to the term in contemporary usage. It is quite certain that the Trinitarian usage of persona does not point to three wills, three emotionally unique beings, or as several 18th century authors influenced by Cartesian, Cartesianism argued, three centers of consciousness. Such impl- implication would be tritheistic, end quote. And then he goes on to talk about pretty much the entire church Catholic little C and implying that they don't teach this as well. So it was the heretics that taught this. It was the detractors who taught this influenced by modern contemporary philosophical writings and understandings and letting those things seep into their doctrine of the Trinity instead of letting scripture ultimately and those things that flow necessarily from that guide uh, their particular thought so that's just kind of a high very high overview of this book very helpful get it it's extremely helpful i, I know it was eye-opening to me it was like wait a minute this sounds this sounds all well, the stuff in here sounds like what some people are saying today in our circles you know especially on the self-conscious stuff it's like that kind of sounds like james white you know and, and at least some of the thinking that he's using um and of course, it, I think that's problematic, but I think there's some lessons we can draw from the above with what Dixon brings out here. Uh, not utilizing church tradition and the proper authority of scripture is extremely problematic and will always lead 
to false doctrine, period. I think you can see that very clearly from places like Ephesians 4, where Paul calls the church to be unified in the understanding of Jesus Christ. Why? So that we cannot be blown around by every wind of doctrine, right? If we're unified in the doctrines of Christ and being unified in Jesus Christ in the way that we should, we won't be blown around by every wind of doctrine. So you can see once you start to leave those biblical categories, those traditional categories that are sitting under Scripture, you will be in danger. Okay, and we see this today in our in our circles. Um, understanding philosophical concepts is a help in properly avoiding certain pagan thought as well as utilizing biblically informed language. And I think Dixon does a really good job in helping in this area to see the language, philosophical language, and the language of uses in general and how that shifted. And I think that really should be a lesson for us today, to be careful how we are thinking as it relates to talking about God and theology in general, that we should always be cognizant of how we're talking about language and how we're using language about the scriptures or any place in theology, not just about God specifically, but anywhere. We should be careful that we're not importing some kind of modern concept that is not biblical on the text of Scripture. And I think, too, you can see from this uh, the, the emphasis that's placed upon God. Cultural issues were really secondary among the Orthodox. And that doesn't mean that cultural issues weren't important. And you see this especially in the Westminster Assembly. Like you look at a Francis Chanel in his uh, clear advocacy for the usage of state power as it relates to religion and tying religion and state together. He, that, that goes without saying, I think, given his Presbyterianism and the, sta the status that he was in. However, God was preeminent. You see this among the Orthodox. These secondary issues were not everything. It was God. Uh, even the atonement was considered a secondary issue. I mean, I, I didn't quote this from before, but Chanel talks about how understanding who God is, his Father, Son, and his Holy Spirit, is the first thing you need to understand that relates to salvation. Not the atonement. We need to get God right first, and then we'll get to the atonement, because the atonement is based upon this particular God that you must understand. If you deny him, you don't have a gospel, essentially is what he's saying. Okay, So, uh, you you just see this as critical importance in the, the harsh pushback that they gave for those who did not abide by these things. It was just seen as you know, you're not a Christian if you if you don't believe in the God of the Bible. Bye. You know, we're not end of story. It doesn't matter what you say about the gospel. If you don't believe God of the Bible, you're just not Christian. We don't we don't care. So I, I think you can unfortunately this importance and this emphasis I think has been lost today in a lot of areas. I think you can see this with the like the guys at G3. Now there's this huge emphasis on cultural issues and not a huge emphasis on, you know, it, it getting God right. It, there's just not. I just don't, I'm not convinced of that. Um, but I think what you see in reform circles, at least in the United States, because I think because of our unique political situation and I think because of our unique uh, you know, structure of government and societal norms, 
I think that those kind of things can thrive here. And you see the culture and politics have really taken a unhealthy spot in reform circles here. You know, as long as you check the box and you're a culture warrior, you're welcome, even if you don't have a biblical understanding or heretical understanding of, of who God is. So I think that you know the, these things have to be reevaluated, and as we're continuing to recovery, we're going to hopefully wake up people more to these things, that we need to read more of this and stay away from you know the cultural stuff as much. But anyways, I, I hope that's been helpful, a little slightly technical episode today, but hopefully that's been a helpful understanding and review of these things. Get this book. Um, you can find it on Amazon, Nice and Hot Disputes. Um, and I, I, I think you'll be edified. It's very interesting to me and very helpful in my own study of these things. Well, thank you for joining me today, and I hope everyone has a great weekend. Uh, for those of you who are going to be at the Keach Conference, I plan to be there uh, and hope to see you there. Maybe we can catch up, talk, or whatever the case might be. Uh, so I look forward to seeing you there tomorrow, Lord willing. Uh, everyone have a great weekend and Lord's Day, and we will hopefully talk next week. Thank you.